You're listening to the first episode of the second season of The Nature of Nurture, a podcast for your mental health. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Carr, and today's conversation, kicking off season two here, is with my colleague, Dr. Stephanie Pass. Stephanie is a psychologist and a psychotherapist. She works with adults and families, and most notably for our purposes today, she works with children, sometimes even very young children, children as young as two I was so excited to have this conversation with her, and I'm thrilled to share it with you today as the first episode of the second season, because I think this is very important information that we get into today. This episode sets up the subsequent episodes pretty beautifully, in my opinion. As I was working on and completing season one, it occurred to me that one of the most challenging things about bridging the gap between what I know and believe to be true as a psychologist versus what a lot of people understand who are not mental health professionals has to do with early childhood development. This is big, my people. The first three to four years of life are crucial for our development. And in order to help crack the code on human behavior, which is ultimately my goal for you, the Nature of Nurture podcast, we need to dig into this a little bit. When children come into the world, they certainly have genetic predispositions and biological vulnerabilities. But we also come into the world like tiny sponges. We don't have anything to compare our experiences to. So we soak up data from the world around us as we start to make sense of what's going on here. Because human beings are hardwired for relationships, and we depend on our caregivers longer than any other species, most of what we pick up on has to do with other people. And we begin to make connections and associations out of things. Are the people who are raising us kind to us? Do they feel safe? What does that mean about them? What does it mean about us? What does that mean about life itself? Is life itself safe? The answers to these questions begin to lay down the framework for what ultimately becomes personality, and it has pretty much everything to do with how we navigate our way through life as adults, partners we choose, the company we maintain, and so, so many other things. It's interesting to note that we don't consciously remember these years very well, right? Most people have very few conscious memories of their lives before the age of around three. That's most likely because of the parts of our brain that store conscious memories are being built during this period of time, which is wild to me. I think this is what leads a lot of people to believe that not much is going on during those years, but nothing could be further from the truth, because this is when we learn to be people to walk, to speak, to relate. We learn who we are in relation to the world around us and unconscious tracks are laid down that follow us either for the rest of our lives or until we do the work to change the things we want to change. Our nervous systems are designed to be co-regulated with other people. This is particularly true of infants with their caregivers, but it's true of adults as well. We are not as separate from one another as we want to believe. We pick up feelings from one another. We exist in tandem with one another in ways that are subtle and sometimes not so subtle and sometimes in ways that are totally profound. So in a moment here, I'm going to drop you in on this conversation. But here are a few things I want you to keep in mind as you listen. One, we're using the notion of therapy with children as a backdrop for this conversation. But we are talking about so much more than therapy with kids. In so many ways, we're talking about what it's like to be human. 
Similarly, we spent some of this discussion talking about therapy with neurodivergent children, children on the autism spectrum, and you do not need to have an interest in neurodivergence in order to get a lot out of that. Talking about the needs of neurodivergent children enables us to have a conversation about the needs of all of us in the same way that talking about therapy with kids enables us to elucidate important elements of the human condition. It's pretty cool stuff, in my opinion. We live in a culture that doesn't have a terribly high EQ. And listening to Stephanie talk about being so present for the emotional lives and inner worlds of young children is a valuable proxy for talking about being present for one another, period. Many of you may be aware of the notion of the couch in psychotherapy. It's a nod to psychoanalytic psychotherapy where patients lay on a couch with the analyst out of view so that they can free associate without the distraction of looking at a therapist's face. I've done it. Highly recommend it. Stephanie knows some people who tease her about her quote-unquote tiny little couch for kids. But as you'll hear in a moment, therapy with children is very, very different from that. You're in your office, I take it, huh? I'm I am. All these kids' toys and that kind of stuff. So sweet. Well, I'll tell you, it's not just the toys. There's a lot of thought that went into, for example, the couch is pulled away from the wall so there can be a hiding place behind it. Oh, I love and I'm in a chair that spins because somebody might need to spin or want to spin. Plus, you can turn the spinning chair over and it turns into a spaceship or a wreck or a car. So everything is multi-purpose. I love it. And that actually, it reminds me of something that you told me on our pre-interview phone call, this idea of people wondering if you have a tiny little couch in your office. How do you explain to people how it is that you do what you do without a a quote unquote tiny little couch? Well, I guess I start by talking about the centrality of play. And I talk about how play for children is how they can express what's going on with them. And That, I think, is not so much a surprise to people. What's a surprise to people is that play is how I respond. That is, that I don't make a lot of interpretations connecting to what the child has going on in their real life. I'm actually inside the play talking to them in that. But I, So I talk about the kinds of difficulties that very young children have, and since that's mostly who I see. And then I talk about about how play is the most comfortable mode for children to think about and feel about what's going on with them. I guess I want to say another thing, which is that I I usually explain to parents that two important things happen. One is that as a child gets comfortable, if they can play and all return, they play out what's going on for them. The other thing is that how the child behaves with other people, they will come to behave with me. And that can become part of what we explore. And, you know, it's what in adult therapy we talk about is transference. Absolutely. Enactments. But children do it too. And if they are provocative or, yeah, let's just say provocative. If they're provocative at home, once they get comfortable with me, they'll do it with me. And I'm using myself to understand the dynamics the child's having with other people. So I could work with a child about that directly. And then I work very closely with parents to try to explicate what I see. Yeah, it's really interesting because I'm so there are so many different ways that we can begin to unpack this, but I'm thinking about how children respond to their emotional lives in this both broad and very central sense of their being. 
So I want to try to have this conversation as much as possible without referencing your writing, because people who are listening to the conversation, for the most part, will not have read it. But one of the things that I was so struck by reading your writing, especially as a fellow professional in this space, is sort of thinking about these, even in early infancy, the ways in which you know, infants and then toddlers kind of experience their reality in conjunction with the adults around them, you know, their parents and primary caregivers, the way that I know in one of your articles, you talked about how babies will stick their tongue out in response to somebody sticking their tongue out as early as 40 minutes after birth. And it reminds me of something that we talked about in our pre-interview, which is just what it's like to do this work in a culture that doesn't have a very terribly high EQ, right? Which is to say that babies are having these really thorough and vast and expansive experiences. And I think so often the adults around them probably often underestimate just how rich of an experience it is. And then there you are tapping into their universe by expressing all of this curiosity about and mirroring around these, you know, childlike experiences. And I don't know if there's a question in there, perhaps I'll have to find one, but I'm, I'm trying to think about how we begin to let people in on what is happening even in your own mind as you are playing, you know, like if we're a kid, they think you're playing with them. And in many ways you are playing with them, but you're also entering their subjective universe in these really rich ways. I think as a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, I'm always thinking about meaning, but I fully appreciate what you're saying about the culture being one that often doesn't. And so part of the work, less with the children than with the parents, is educating them that things are meaningful. I mean, I, I, I always think, how do we move for the parent who comes in all exasperated saying, why does he do that? Yeah. Which is, why does he do that? Right. Just some assumption that there's a, there is meaning um, and there's a communication. And that idea is sometimes really hard to communicate to people, to teachers, to parents, to the world at large. It's always easier with people who are a little more psychologically minded, I suppose. But it's not just that. I think if a child is having difficult behaviors, parents naturally want to get it fixed. They want it to go away. And again and again, I am always explaining that it's not, that you have to go through it <laughs> to get out of it. We have to go deep into it. So that's a lot of the work, helping people understand that it's meaningful. It's not so hard with children. So I, I have a question I want to ask you, but I, I'll preface it with something which I think is so interesting is that I'm I'm always struck doing this work. And I, I really feel this in your writing at how often the resolution becomes, you know, to the extent that anyone ever wants to fix a problem psychologically, psychotherapeutically with themselves or others that in order to fix it, you first have to really, you have to enter it. You have to sort of see it and feel it fully, right? So you have these kids coming into your office that are letting you into their subjective universe by demonstrating for you what their lives are like through the way that they play. And I wonder if you maybe want to give the listener an example of how that comes alive in your office, you know, in the same way that you're talking about hiding behind the couch or, you know, turning something into a steering wheel, 
how for someone who's never read your writing, how would you how would you let them know or give them an example of how a child lets you know what they're going through via the way that they play? Well, I'll tell you a very dramatic incident of a little boy who was only three years old and who was uh, violent with his violent, acting out a lot with his little sister and generally um, impulsive, moving fast. I mean, he's only three, but even by those terms. And he was, his mother was quite worried about him. And she brought him to see me. First few sessions, I saw him with his mother, and I was struck by actually how contained he was, which made me wonder. You mentioned curiosity earlier. Curiosity is key. And I wondered. And then I decided to see him alone once. What was fascinating was when I saw him alone, he went right to my camp, where he'd explored a little but never gotten into it, and carefully took out a bin of little animals. And then he went through the animals and carefully selected from them just the fiercest ones. He left behind the goats and the cows and the chickens. He took out lions and tigers and bears. And then he went to the dollhouse and he got a mommy doll. And he laid the mommy doll down and he proceeded to have these fierce animals kind of crash down on the mommy. And he said very specifically, they're pooping in her eyes, they're pooping on, on her boobies. So she was very specific. This, this is amazing, really. Yeah. It helped me understand, I said, those animals really want to get that mommy. You can't run away from the aggression. You have to acknowledge it. This is a communication. So why? I don't say don't hurt the mommy. Right. And I, I always am just letting it be and commenting on it and letting him know. But what it helped me know was that it helped me go back to something that had been a brief comment from his mother, who was a, you know, a very caring and thoughtful person which was that she had been depressed when he was first born. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, how interesting, the specificity of her eyes and her breasts, that he was saying those were the two parts that he attacked. And what was it like? And I don't think he could have put it into words, but he could put it into play, that these were the parts of the mermaid that were not what he wanted, that didn't work for him. Yeah. And that, so that's, that's one example. And I take it that something was happening when he was around her, where that it wasn't being expressed directly towards her. Huh? It was sort of getting, he was like, displaced onto his sister or whatever. But he, but he, there was something about his. I don't know, you know, was what was just what you saw in that one interaction versus how much was consistent in the family across many interactions. But it sounds like he was maybe containing something in her presence that he was taking out on other other people, huh? Right. And this was more important information. It made me think what, how interesting that this child who seemed so uninhibited was in fact quite capable of inhibiting his aggression until he was in a safe place. He was able to perceive that being alone with me was a safe place. And he was able, he, he clearly felt that he couldn't play that way in front of his mother. Mm -hmm. She was too fragile. Mm -hmm. So already at three years old, he already had an idea about his mother and about how the world works. And he was angry about it. He was angry at his mother, but he also wanted to feel powerful when he had felt so powerless. Right. Because, uh, you know, he was hardwired, like most of us are, to have a relationship with the mother who had carried him in her stomach. And then she wasn't able, through no fault of her own, she wasn't able to meet him in the ways that he would have liked. Right. So I can only imagine that a very difficult part of your work is then explaining that to her or beginning to bridge that gap. Can you tell us a little bit about how you explained to her what you were beginning to uncover with him? I meet a lot with parents. I, I probably meet with them more than some other child therapists or maybe even most. But with her, 
I mean, I guess I'd like to speak about it more generally. What I always do is work inside that relationship. I ask the mother to tell me that I thought about what had happened. I didn't tell her exactly what he did, mm-hmm. but I told I asked her to tell me more about the depression when she when he was born. What was that like? And we explored it, and she felt the feeling she had about it. And through that kind of, I guess I'd call it adjunct psychotherapy. Right. We helped her leave that behind. Mm. Think about what he needed to partly to compensate for that missed time. I think something that happens a great deal is that parents think about their child's chronological age and not about places where development might have gotten stuck. Right. And I can guide them back to that those moments. This happens with children with developmental differences, but it actually happens with all of us. Yes. Things that didn't get to happen the way they might have. Absolutely. You can return to it. And and eventually I talked with her. I began to see them together again. And I worked with her about how she could play with him and not shy away from his aggressive themes and let him explore aggression in her presence and angry feelings in her presence so he could see that she could handle it. She could take it. Well, yeah, it's so interesting because it makes me think about what it's like for you and the parents and, and these kids where in your office, because you are trained to do the work that you do and are highly skilled at it, you know how to let kids just have their experience without wanting to make it go away. And I would imagine that a lot of what happens when these kids are not in your office is that especially if you look at something like signs of aggression and that kind of stuff, that so often parents just want to make it stop, which most likely most of the time, it probably makes it worse, right? So do you feel like part of your role in a in a family intervention of this kind is to let or to kind of teach parents how to be curious about what their children are expressing? Very much. Yeah. To slow them down. There's a wonderful quote from a child psychiatrist, Sally Provence, who says, don't just do something, stand there. Stand there and we're <laughs> He's trying to tell him something. And I quote that a lot. Let's, you know, and then this more psychotherapeutic piece is to, to say to the parent, oh, that must have been so difficult. How did you feel when that happened? Right. So we can start to understand their half of the dance. What, when the child does whatever, that have a painful thing, well, how do they react? How do they pull away from it and become unavailable? Yes. What in their own childhood is brought up by it? I mean, there's a huge amount of uh, dropping down in parents' own memories. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one of the reasons why the example that you're using is so powerful is I'm, I'm sort of imagining what it was like for this mother who was depressed when her child was young, whether it was postpartum depression or whether she previously had depression, struggled with depression, I don't know. Uh, in some ways, the answer doesn't really matter, but it makes me think about this issue of blame that we live with in our culture, where mm-hmm. so often I think it can be hard for people who are not therapists to really be curious about the way that people are behaving because there's this sense that someone has to take responsibility for it or so- someone is to blame for it. And what I'm really hearing in this example is, you know, his mother was having her own experience. She could not help it. She felt depressed. And yet it was having very understandable impact, very understandable in my mind, and I'm sure yours, impact on her infant child's development and budding sense of self in the world. 
And it's just interesting to think about how we hold that, right? It kind of makes me wonder how you help parents to maybe see the role that they've played in something while helping them to also understand that it isn't their fault that it happened, right? Or that it happened in the way that it did. Sometimes there's bad behavior involved, but I think so often it's not about that. It's about stuff that is so much more subtle. I think I do carry with me a belief that in general, most people are doing the best they can. Mm. And we're not coming from that position. So I'm curious about how it's played out. Mm -hmm. And I spend a lot of time exploring where parents came from themselves. And I just, I'm very transparent about it. I say, I need to know a little bit about your family that you grew up in. It'll help me understand how you parent. Mm -hmm. And, but that may be the first time anyone's ever thought about that with them or thought about how they parent is somehow a reflection of how they were parented. Exactly. Yeah. So I think just bringing that into consciousness in a very non-judgmental, curious way myself, that helps a lot. You know, it's, it can be very slow work. On the other hand, people are very motivated for their young children. The idea that a child of, you know, two, three, four, five might be in distress, it's very motivating. And parents are very brave. I mean, I think I, I am tremendously in awe of people who are willing to kind of come in and explore what they might be able to do differently. What I say is that you, you are your child's home in the deepest sense of the word. You are where they live. So you're in a very powerful place to help change things. Yeah. Wow. That's so beautiful. But one of the things that it makes me think of is just kind of the dividing line between quote unquote pathological behavior and non-pathological behavior in the sense that I think it might be relatively easy for, for a listener who's not a therapist to hear this and think that the children who end up in your office are automatically experiencing some kind of pathology that another kid that never sees you is not. And I can't help but want to kind of reframe that by explaining that I think there are a lot of kids that don't ever go to therapy and it doesn't mean that they're not struggling with really similar issues. And I wonder how you think about that for yourself, like what the threshold is for the children that end up in your office versus, I mean, I, to me, what we're talking about is so, it's almost mundane in terms of everybody is raised in a family that is, you know challenged in some way, shape, or form. So it's just interesting to think about the kids that end up in your office right? versus maybe all the other kids that might be struggling in some way and might not end up in your office. Well, there's a cultural piece, but there's also class piece. I mean, I'm a psychotherapist in private practice. There are parents who can afford to say, let's see if we can get some help with this. Yeah. There are parents, many more who can't. I mean, that's, you know, thank goodness for, I mean, it's the reason I do a lot of training and thank goodness for lower fee clinics and things like that. But that's a big piece of it. That's just, no, I that's really hear you. I really hear you. It's amazing how that in and of itself speaks volumes. I think about sort of the suffering <laughs> in this country and even around the globe, like all the, all of the people that are struggling in some way, shape or form and don't have access to resources. I mean, I, I, one of the things I like about this kind of work, getting in early and helping children get on track early when you're not sort of peeling an onion. You're not even sitting as you do with adults and hearing them talk about their parents. You have the parents in the room, mm -hmm. if not therapy, you know the therapy. But, but another piece of it that I really enjoy is that I spend a lot of time doing consultations to schools, either preschools or elementary schools. And I always think when I'm doing that, there's a kind of a, like a spray or irrigation effect. 
you know, if I do a consultation with a teacher and they end up thinking a little bit differently and being more curious and less angry about a difficult behavior about a child who falls outside, you know, they can be terribly well-trained, but their usual bag of tricks isn't working. If I can influence them in a way that that could go on for generations of children. I love thinking about it that way. Yeah. So that keeps me afloat. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think about the nature of dyadic work too. And I would love to talk to you about that a little bit because I know that you see children as young as two in your private practice. If you are seeing a kid that is as young as two years old, are you? how much of that work is spent alone with them versus watching the way that they interact with their parents? I, it's entirely working with them with the parents. Yeah. Yeah. If children come to me at age two, it's, oh, I would say almost always because there's some kind of what I would call hardwiring difference. Mm -hmm. These are kids who have neurodevelopmental challenges, Mm -hmm. autism being the most obvious one, but any kind of syndrome like that, or children who are, uh, well, children who maybe who are unusually sensitive or highly reactive, who are hard to parent. Sensory processing issues, that sort of thing. Definitely sensory processing issues. I do think every parent is surprised a little bit by the child in their imagination morphing into the child they actually got and finding out who, you know, they're their own little person and then they have their own ways. But I think that that gap is harder to cross over when the child is very, very different from the person that was expected. Well, it's so interesting. I I wanted to talk to you about this because there's something about talking about therapy with, you know, this kind of therapy with neurodivergent children that I think really brings something to life about neurotypical children in terms of what is happening between parents and children. And I wonder, you know, I don't know if you have an example that is that is handy for you around maybe even just work with a young, you know, neurodivergent child in terms of helping a parent to understand the ways in which they needed to parent their child a little bit differently in order to get the kid to fully kind of come online, so to speak. It feels like that's part of what happens, that the natural interplay between parent and infant gets a little bit interrupted when a kid has special needs. Well, I'd like to give a couple of examples mm-hmm. because it's, here's one that's, that's kind of writ large. A four-year-old boy comes into my office and his mother says, uh, you know, he's, he doesn't really do much about it. He's autistic. He's already been diagnosed as autistic. He has a few words, but he doesn't really use most of them functionally. Mm-hmm. He, only, he has under 10 words, but one of his words is go. I know that. He doesn't say mommy or daddy. And uh, he's kind of wandering listlessly around my office. He looks kind of blue, though his, he looks blue in a way that seems more and turns out to be that he's very low tone. That means he has low muscle tone. He's got low arousal, is what we call it. He's not, he doesn't have a lot of get up and go. Right. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but his mother looks similarly, but hers looks more like depression. She's discouraged. Yeah. And at one point, her son goes and starts pounding on the metal file cabinet in the corner of my office. And she says, now he's getting aggressive, you know, on top of everything else. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of interested at this point because he's doing something intentional for the first time. At this point, I go over and I get small with him. I spend a lot of time on the floor. (laughs) I make myself more of a hider for you. And I start pounding with him side by side. Mm -hmm. And he looks at me with interest. And then he pounds and then he stops. And then I pound. And pretty soon we're having a little conversation of pounding. Mm -hmm. 
and he's lighting up. And then I start thinking about other things about him, about how sensitive he is and how earlier his mother had tried to kind of play a clap, clap and like panic cake game with him. And he was completely uninterested. And I said, why don't you go back and try patty cake again? But this time, clap so hard your hands sting and get small. She got small, she played patty cake, and he loved it. He thought it was great. Mm. So I said, you know, he does not feel things unless they come in harder. Right. He was building on the filing cabinet, not because he's angry, but it felt good to him. Mm. It was alerting. So that would be an example of interpreting strange behavior and saying it's full of meaning. He's trying to feel something and make some noise happen. And if, I, if you can meet him at something that interests him, which turned out to be drumming on the interesting sounding filing cabinet, he was quite available for playful interactions. And I'm sort of thinking about anything just to kind of translate this even more fully for the listener. So I take it that because you had to be a little bit more forceful in effect to get through to him because subtle interactions didn't get through as well. That if you were a little bit more, you know, again, playing patty cake hard enough to make your hands sting, it, it took a little extra to get through to him. But in doing so, you were able to give him, first of all, a sense of interaction, right? He's now having an interactional experience with you, with his mother. Did that result in him eventually kind of a little bit, of, pardon the language, but like coming out of his shell a little bit? Did it help him to, was it was that a healing experience outside of that one interaction? Yes, but it was one of thousands of similar interactions. Yes. That is, as a result of that interaction, his mother began to understand something about his body and that to help him be alert, she had to come in on this other frequency, but only around that aspect of what we call his sensory profile. Mm -hmm have uh, unusual sensory profiles. And what I mean by that is the way that they perceive things through their senses um, can vary quite a bit. Now, it wasn't that she should come in more forcefully across the board. Absolutely. It would not have been good for her to talk louder. Auditory wasn't impaired in that way. It would have scared him to death. Right. His tactile system was hyposensitive, under undersensitive. But yes, those kinds of interpretations, they change, first of all, the way the mother looks at her child. Mm -hmm. She said, you're navigable after all. I can find my way around you. Yes. I can feel effective. Yes. And when he starts to feel effective, there's a positive spiral. He also says, you can get me if I, if um, you're, you're getting me. You're, you're um, understanding me. Absolutely. You're, so it does set up a positive spiral. But this has to happen over and over again. So this is why this work is usually parent-child work, is that I'm, I'm really, I'm using my psychodynamic and developmental understanding, but I'm working in the dyad. The work is really about helping them start to dance together. Well, and that is, you know, sort of to my point about how that can really make something come to life about what happens even with neurotypical kids is that I think what a lot of people really underestimate in my experience is just how much people become who they are, you know, children become themselves and then grow up into being adults sort of through the interaction that they experience with their caregivers. And it's interesting to think that neurodivergent children are actually just, you know, they require an extra effort in order for that connection to be made. But the connection oftentimes nonetheless can be made. And I, I think one thing I really want to highlight so that people can hopefully really hear this 
is that it's not a matter of coming up with a cookie cutter thing, you know, oh, neurodivergent children need you to be more physical with them. It's actually a matter of catering yourself to their unique needs, which requires paying a lot of attention for a lot of neurodivergent children or or children with sensory processing issues, sometimes the problem or the the challenge is that they are more sensitive, you know, more sensitive to sound. So in order to get through to them, you would have to be quieter. But it's interesting to think that there's something about what we're talking about here that I think amplifies something that is true of life, period, which is that, you know, a, a perfectly, you know, neurotypical healthy child can come into the world with a neurotypical brain and they still will benefit from somebody being curious about how they're experiencing the world and what is enabling them to take it in or not take it in however they do. It's also important to remember that these differences that characterize children on the autistic spectrum or children with neurodevelopmental or um, sensory processing difficulties and other neurodevelopmental disorders are in fact present in all of us, that, that we all have our different areas of greater and less sensitivity. If you, just an example would be two people go to the same party and find it stimulating and one afterwards is so stimulated, she wants to go out to another party and another person is so stimulated, they want to go home and probably not do anything the next day either. Yes. Now, neither of these are pathological, mm -hmm. um, but they, and I think that these are things that tend to be understood as personality, but I've become quite interested in how we might understand personality as something that in part rides along on our physiology. Even if it comes to things like introversion or extroversion or how, how people interact with the world, right? Yeah. And I, I like this also because it you you know you brought up psychopathology that I, I think the pathological model is not terribly helpful for understanding actual people and you know we just we vary greatly and a stance of curiosity about how someone lives in the world even someone who is your own flesh and blood. <laughs> It is a helpful stance. Absolutely. And you had said that you had more than one example. Do you want to give us another of, of an instance of maybe dyadic work or? I just, uh, I'm just thinking just the other day, a child said to me, kindergartner, I was able to go to assembly. It's her. And he said, yeah, they gave me headphones. Oh. You know, what a good idea. You know, so that was, you know, this is a child who has all kinds of language and at five years old already has that capacity to be observant of himself. And thanks to his parents, he didn't say, I had to wear headphones. Nobody else wore headphones. He just thought, solution, great. <laughs> so you could see how things can be turned around. Uh, absolutely. I, you know, it makes me think about the notion of a child or a person being sensitive. You know, we live in a culture that tends to think about that as a as a criticism or as a weakness for a child or for a person to be sensitive. And I think that everybody on some level has their sensitivities, don't they? You know, again, that's a culture that is valuing being busy all the time and getting a huge amount done, but what kind of things are getting done? What kind of relationships are being built? So I'm thinking a little bit about the children that you see in your work, and I'm thinking about the, the adults that they grow up to be, right? You know, I know when you and I were having a separate conversation, you made a comment about just sort of what happens to people if they never go into treatment. You know, if someone is struggling as a child and then they grow up to be an adult and it's never intervened upon. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about 
I guess this is kind of a big question. We can kind of try to narrow it down if that makes it more accessible for you. But I'm, I guess I'm just sort of thinking about even the the work that you do with adults and kind of how that, how you sort of see some of these issues that we're talking about in childhood play themselves out in adulthood. Well, I certainly find myself with adults, parents, but also just the adults that I see wondering about who they were as children, how they were. And, and I am, I don't know, I, I think about children who learn early on that there are places you can't go, like a little boy who waited until his mother was out of the room to, to play things. And I think that we all learn there are things that you're allowed to think and know and feel, and there are things that you are not. Mm. And that those stay with us for a long time. It, 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 and this happens a lot, and this is in a very, I'd say, non-pathological situation, where there's just a kind of awkward mismatch between parent and child. If two very lively and excitement-seeking, gregarious parents have a child who is quieter, just quieter, there's going to be a mismatch. And that doesn't mean all kinds of terrible difficulties are going to come out of that. But that being able to say, my kid is different from me, and and interesting and marvelous in her own way, that's the kind of environment, I think, that ends up producing a healthy person. Not, not I was, being different isn't the problem. It's not being recognized that's the problem. Yes. I, I'm thinking so many different things in response to that, but I'm, I'm really struck by this idea of kind of the, the things that we're not supposed to be feeling. And this idea of, you know, it strikes me that in our relatively low EQ culture, we have a feeling of wanting to make, there's an issue of wanting to make feelings go away sometimes, or, you know, wanting to make certain behaviors go away. And it feels to me, you know, even though you work mostly with children and I work with adults, the thing that our work really has in common, regardless of the age of the person that we're working with, is it feels like so often our job is just to sort of sit with whatever is being felt until there's room for it to kind of come into the room and for the person themselves to to get access to something that has otherwise been denied. And so I really hear you on that. And I, I wonder, actually, I don't know if you have an example of this or if there's anything that comes to mind around what it's like for you to be in the presence of a child that is maybe, you know, obviously unbeknownst to them, kind of repressing something or in denial of something, or there's some some feeling of the of contorting themselves maybe to be okay for their parents because their parents, you know, were taught to be afraid of feelings and now are afraid of their children's feelings. What I'm thinking about is many, many years ago as a child who looking through my puppets and went through them and, you know, some are very benign and some are kind of neutral, but some are mean. There's kind of a monster word in a witch one and a wolf. And he took the three mean ones and he put them in my little toy oven. <laughs> just put them out of the way. And I said something just about that. I mean, it will seem obvious, but it really, I think it was the right thing to say. I said, I said, you want them out of here and you want, you want to burn them up in the oven. And he said, yeah. And I said, they won't bother us there. (laughs) So I'm just basically in those moments, I'm just sort of tracking how he feels. He wants to get rid of those. But it also made me think I have to be on the lookout for this, for those feelings. Those are the feelings that he, in a very concrete way, right? Adults (laughs) adults don't play like that. But in adults, you pitch them. They can't go there, you know? So why 
something happened to them that they should be angry about and they're not. Right. Or, or even better is when it actually happens in the hour with you, the therapist. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm going to be looking for that. If I come back from a vacation, I'm going to be listening for this child and expecting that he won't be able to be angry at me, but it might come out in some other way. Mm-hmm. You know, much later, this little guy took the same puppets and he put the wolf inside the clown puppet and he said, he's both. That's right. He's both. Kind of mean and he's kind of nice. Kind of like me, kind of like you, kind of like mommy, kind of like daddy. He's both. Right? So that was, you know, that was kind of a wonderful working through between, you know, having to avoid it and then over time solving the problem in this very creative way, metaphorically, but also at this time in his life, he was, he'd become less black and white. Was that he was both? So I take it. I don't know how much you think about this through the lens of almost rapport building, but one of the things that I'm struck by in your work is that I get the sense. Please tell me if you think I'm getting this right or not. That a lot of times in the beginning of working with a child, a lot of what you do is just sort of label what they're doing or externalize it in some capacity. You know, they're playing in a certain way and you just sort of, in some ways, almost let them know what you're observing. A lot of this is probably very um, related to the temperament of the child and how much they're willing to let you in. But the sense that I get reading your writing is that a lot of times when it gets to the point where more change is occurring, you might be doing more interpreting or seeing if you can kind of intervene a little bit more on what they're doing. But in the very beginning, it feels like it's a lot of just sort of labeling, right? Mm-hmm. Like like just sort of being okay with what is, you know, if the kid wants to put something that they don't want in the oven to get it away and burn it up, you just sort of witness that on their behalf, basically, right? Like, that's right. Let's get that. Let's get that out of the way. I witness it. I would say I go a little further in that I, I suggest the meaning it might have for him, right? I didn't just say, you want to burn them up. <laughs> I said, they're not going to bother us for a while. And what I mean is, you know, what I'm, I'm speaking to is you are actively, I mean, you know, you're repressing. You're, you're just in a wonderful <laughs> image yeah. of repressing. You know, put these out of here. But I am wanting, even that was early on with him, to put that into his consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were worrying him which is the word I use a lot with children, you know, mm-hmm. that you're, they, they made you feel a little worried. And you, you did something about it. I always like to underscore the child's agency where I can. Mm-hmm. And then as time evolves, do you ever, ever suggest a child do something? So for example, one way, one way of sort of thinking about that act, like just sort of commenting on it for him, is it almost sounds like you're colluding in it, right? I don't think that you are colluding in it, but you're joining him in that, right? And I guess I would wonder as as the play evolves and as your relationship with the child evolves, does it start to become a little bit more like maybe suggesting they do something different because it's sort of teaching a coping strategy or letting them to try on something new? I I do stretch the play and I invite it to go new places. Mm. I, I- Rarely would I think of it as teaching so much as, right, exploring other possibilities. But for example, one child who was over and over again setting up army men on my desk and then everybody shooting them all and they all died. Periodically, I would say, is there an ambulance here? Can we, can we get a doctor? And he would say, no, no. And I'd say, this is a terrible scene, you know, and I, you know, but in fact, he needed to play it that way for a while. And then one day there was, 
And but yes, I will suggest it. And then with children who are like with the child who was so constricted, I might suggest an activity like sword play with my foam swords to see if he could start to see the pleasure of doing something combative in a controlled, safe way. So I will, I will extend. I don't. I start by following their lead, but I do bring in things and suggest activities that I think will help them activate parts of themselves that have been squelched. It feels like it's really related to the trust and the safety in the relationship that as their trust in you grows and the relationship deepens, they're they're sometimes able to maybe try out new things or express themselves in different ways. No, I think that's right. And there will inevitably, as with adult therapy, be little failures. Mm-hmm. And those are often the richest things that happen. Yeah. You know, I was having a cozy moment with one little little child uh, toward and you know, it felt very close. And at one point, I had to say, you know, we only have five more minutes. And he looked at me and said, now I hate you. Oh. And I said, but, but again, I wanted to acknowledge what had happened. And I said, I know you are really loving me. And now you hate me. And then he said, oh, and then he was like, fine. You know, he was okay. Yeah. I wanted to say, I can receive that message. I get it. You know, in the world of a five-year-old, I had done something really mean. But I also wanted to say, this is a relationship that can withstand that. And also, I knew it was related to the other side of it, which is that we'd been so cozy. We'd kind of had made a little pretend campfire. And, you know, what's 50 minutes to a child? <laughs> How random is that? It's over. <laughs> Can you say a little bit about what happens when a kid doesn't want to leave your office? Because I'm sure that happens. It happens all the time. It's really difficult. Um, you know, I, I I actually feel almost sadder about the kids who just get up and go. I'm really wrong. You know, if, I think I just, I know that that not wanting to leave is a measure of the special things that have happened. If a parent is in a session, if it's a parent-child session, I use it as an opportunity to coach parents into understanding the child's feelings. I always laugh about how often parents will say to the child, oh, it's okay, it's okay, we'll go get a muffin. And I always think, how does a muffin begin to compare to this wonderful hour we've just spent? Like, but I also have, well, tell parents, let's not finesse this. This is, this is a real feeling. And I remember to one mom saying, I think you just need to be with your daughter in her sadness. And she said, huh. And then she said, I know, I, it's so sad to leave Stephanie's. We've had such a good time. And the little girl kind of pulled herself together. And the mother said, that's kind of profound. And I said, I know. It is profound. That is, if you acknowledge someone's feelings, if they feel heard, they actually can pull themselves together better. So the end of sessions are, are hugely rich. I do not try to say, oh, don't worry, you'll be back next week. Mostly, I want to speak to the true feelings of sadness, and together we can have those. Yeah, there's so much in there, right? It just in terms of how even adults have a tendency to want to make feelings go away, you know, with a muffin or whatever it is. And I, I have done a lot of work with people who struggle with various kinds of addiction. And it feels like that's a slightly more extreme version of something that I think is extremely commonplace, which is just 
wanting to make a feeling go away in whatever way we can make it go away. And the sort of muffin is representative, I think, of, I mean, how powerful to think that in many ways you're teaching parent and child both how to have an uncomfortable feeling and also how to handle goodbyes, which are notoriously fraught for many people, can be so painful and sad. I'm always keenly aware in the parent-child sessions that part of what the child is sad about leaving isn't me, it's the special time with their parent. I like to speak to that, you know, because I think often that really is what's been special. And I, I will say something like, I know you and daddy had so much fun this time. And then I'll often will relate the things that happened. You came in and you didn't work sure what you wanted to do. And then you decided to make a fort and you and Danny pulled all the cushions off the couch and it kept falling down and you were sort of frustrated, but it was okay. You know, but just to send it, because in fact, one of the ways we cope with loss and separation is by remembering. So I wanted, I'd like to sort of support that. I would imagine that these days, just with technology and iPhones and the demands of modern living, probably is worse than it has ever been in terms of it just feels like so much of what you're saying is that kids are getting their parents' undivided attention, and they may not get that very often outside of your office, parents working and then being on technology almost all the time. So I I guess I'll just ask you this. I mean, you know, is there anything that we haven't touched upon that you... I guess I think I spoke earlier to the importance of early intervention and the the pleasure of it. I I think it's so valuable when a child can get help early on. I I think of them as being, they're like a lump of clay on a wheel and a little bit of a nudge in one direction can make a huge difference. So... This is true in terms of the individual child's development and also in terms of the parent-child relationship. When something is off, you can intervene early and, and make a huge amount of difference. This is not the work that I originally thought I would do. I was going to be a therapist to adults. And it wasn't until I started reading psychoanalytic theory, which is so based in early childhood, that I thought I wanted to get some training where I could see that. And then I was hooked. And I thought, well, let's just get them in. So I, I think it's a very powerful thing to recognize when things are even a little off. If we can help them, then they don't have to be hugely off later. Absolutely. Something that I have been quite candid about and spoken about publicly quite a bit is that I became a psychologist, arguably, because I had gone to therapy for the first time when I was about 10. My mother had had a couple of brain hemorrhages, and there were a few other things happening in my family, but that was, that was the big motivating factor for my parents to get me into therapy. And it changed my life so immeasurably that it, you know, it's what led me into this work. And so obviously 10 is a lot older than two or three or <laughs> or even seven. But but a lot of my early, earliest experiences of therapy were were with play, were with, you know, with drawing and, you know, I remember that. So I have had the experience recently of having people connect with me, parents or children who have become adults years later. And it's, it's very moving to hear about what it meant. And then there are other children who just forgot about me. <laughs> and I like to think that I'm somewhere in there, but they don't remember that relationship. It was when they were three years old. Oh, that's so interesting. So I take it you, you know that they don't remember, meaning that you have encountered them again as adults and, and that's been affirmed? No, I connected with a parent. Okay, got it. And, and she asked her, no, adult son, 
Do you remember when you were three and you went and played with that lady who had the, you know, the little blue kitchen and this and that? And he said, no. Wow. Isn't that so powerful to think of the impact that you could have on a child that they don't even recall? I mean, granted, you know, almost every experience a child has up to about three or four is an impactful experience they don't remember. But it's just interesting to think about that therapy. Well, they don't they don't remember, but I have to think that, well, he doesn't maybe remember me as a person. Mm-hmm. Somewhere inside of him, he had an experience over and over, week after week, coming and playing with me. And, you know, during that time, he changed a great deal and he, he softened and he opened, he became much less rigid. And I have to think that it's inside of him. Things are formative sometimes, even if they're not remembered. And I think that's why psychotherapy works. I mean, actually, I want to stop and underscore that. I mean, that's, that's what we do, right? It's in there. It's in his unconscious. Exactly. The plane. Exactly. I mean, when he's, as an adult, if he ever hits or when he ever hits some bumps, his readiness to say, you know, I bet there's somebody I could talk to. It's been shaped. Yes. And even just at the level of his neuroplasticity, you know, that however it was that he was operating when he originally encountered you, you know, that was molded into something more resilient by the time he left. So all of that neural wiring was, was nudged along in your presence. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. You're very welcome. You've been listening to the first episode of season two of The Nature of Nurture, and I want to thank you for joining us. Stephanie is not on social media and she's not currently available for referrals, but if you loved this conversation so much that you want to send her fan mail, you can do that by emailing her at stephaniefpass at gmail.com. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me at Dr. Leslie Carr on Instagram and Twitter. If you found this conversation valuable, please let me know by leaving a review or rating. It helps immensely to get the word out about the podcast and into the ears of those who may need it most. It'll also help me understand what you're getting out of our conversations. You can also subscribe, if you haven't already, in any podcast app that you can get your hands on. Next up this season is an awesome conversation that I had with my friend and colleague Erica Boisier about couples therapy and how some of the themes that we discussed today might be showing up in your romantic attachments. Trust me when I tell you, you don't want to miss that episode. Many, many thanks to my producer and sound editor, Amanda Rascoe-Mayo, and to Stephanie for having this conversation with me. Thank you as well to Donio Dulio for the artwork, and thank you to Steve Van Dyke, Lee and Tyler Sargent, and Joe Potts for their permission to use their music. The band was called Clown Down. <laughs>